You're listening to the Lee Side Lives podcast with Jordan McCarthy. Tyg Coakley is my guest on episode number 17. Tyg is an author and sports writer from Mallow, living in Cork City. He has just recently released his second book, which is entitled Whatever It Takes, and it's published by Mercier Press. It has been chosen as the Cork One City, One Book for 2020. Whatever It Takes is a crime novel set in Cork. The story features a poisoning, a kidnapping, a vendetta. Detective Garda Collins is at war with the leading local criminal, Dominic Malloy. Unwilling to accept the human degradation caused by Malloy's drugs, violence and prostitution, he has made up his mind to bring Malloy down. I guess a lot of stories are set in Paris or New York or London or Rome, but Cork isn't a bad place to set a novel either, is it? And that's what you've done with whatever it takes. No, and, and that's really what I set out to do, Jordan. Um, about five years ago, I was looking to retire from my job in CIT and I always wanted to write. So I'd never read a crime novel set in Cork City and I thought, well, why not have a go at setting one myself and developing a character who'd be really steeped in the city and then writing a novel around that. So that's what I set out to do and eventually it happened and, and the book was published recently, as you say. I think it's powerful when you're reading a novel and you know the streets or most of the streets anyway. It's kind of similar to Catherine Corwin's novel last year as well. Uh, I think there's something special about that when you know the place. You, you feel like you're in the character's shoes, I think. Is that what you kind of set out to do as well? Uh, absolutely, yeah. It's very important because You know, the main thing for a reader is that the sense of place and the sense of place is very important in crime novels, uh, that it's authentic, that, you know, the reader feels they're there. Even if they've never been to Cork, like I've never been to Louisiana, where James Lee Burke sets his books. But when I read his books, I really feel I'm there. But for people who actually are living there and for people who are living in Cork, it's really important for me to get the streets right, to get the feel right, because immediately, if you know the city, you'll spot any kind of problems and any difficulties. So that that's a big challenge. But yeah, I'm happy enough, really, that I did that. I kind of kept locations. I There's a mixture of locations in the book. A lot of scenes are set around the city, one or two outside the city. And then I also created, I used the real names of streets for a lot of occasions. And then I created some fictional names as well, because I didn't want to stereotype any particular part of the city or anything like that. So I, I spread it around. And it's a, it's a thriller, it's a crime novel. And oh yeah, I read it last week and really, really enjoyed it. Ty, what was it like, uh, I suppose, releasing a book in 2020, given the year that it's been with the, with the pandemic and whatnot? Yeah, that was that was strange, really, Jordan. It um, I signed a contract with the Mercier Press, the publishers, last October. So I worked with my editor on the book then, you know, kind of getting it right and everything, and we were heading to publish it in June. But, you know, the pandemic kind of locked down all the bookstores and everything. So I got a phone call in April to say they were pushing it back to July, which was fine, really. I mean, there was no bookstores even open at that time. So it was strange um, and, you know, it did interfere with, I had two book launches planned, they couldn't go ahead. Then I was very lucky to win the One City, One Book uh, Award and um, there were some events planned around that and they had to be cancelled and there's, you know, at that moment I've had seven events cancelled around it, but I'm just glad the book is out there, people are reading it, enjoying it. You know, a lot of lot of other people are in much worse situation for me. Uh, the main character 
in this book, Tyg, is, is Tim Collins, a Garda who's a former inter-county hurler, former car curler. Uh, like yourself, you would have won in All-Ireland as a minor, Tyg, is that right? Well, I did, but I was never as good as Tim. Tim made it to senior, and uh, yeah, he won. Uh, he obviously is a fictional character. He won three All-Irelands for Cork, yeah. And the reason for that really was... Um, I wanted him to be a kind of a, partly an insider and partly an outsider. A lot of crime novels are about detectives, private detectives, who are the kind of classic outsider, you know, the Philip Marlowe type character or um, Charlie Parker, you know, the John Connolly character. They're very much an outsider. But I wanted Collins to be partly an insider as well. And one of the real ways of being an insider in Cork is to be a sports, a sports player. So I wanted that kind of mix of character and also his toughness and his resilience. I wanted that to come through as well. Um, so, you know, you develop those as, as being a serious sports, uh, sports player. You, know, you have to be tough and you have to, you have to see things through. You have to do whatever it takes. As, well, Maddie, congratulations on a terrific novel and on being chosen for the One City, uh, One Book initiative as well, Tyke. And of course, it's not your... Your first publication, first Sunday in September, was uh, produced back in 2018. And uh, I must admit, I devoured this book in uh, in a weekend in Tipperary. Uh, this weekend just passed. I, I I really loved it. I think non-sports fans will enjoy it too, though, because while it is centred around uh, an All-Ireland hurling final weekend, uh, it's more about the point of view or the different points of view from various characters and about emotion and, and all that goes with sport, Tyg, isn't it? Very much, very much, Jordan. And that's exactly what I was trying to do in that book. There are 18 characters in the book and there's 18 stories, really. And they're linked uh, stories, short stories. And uh, yeah, at one point, I really wasn't going to even describe the game at all. I did eventually in one story called Five Seconds. But um, yeah, our emotion, uh, you know, sport, uh, all art, really, all kind of books, uh, film, music is about emotion and sport is the same. So I started with one character. Would you believe his name is Tim Collins as well? A different character, but I chose the same name. And uh, I had an idea that I wanted to write a story about a man who's observing his son, but they're estranged. Uh, they can't meet. And I thought about a man watching his son playing in a hurling match. and It's an All-Ireland final. And he gave him up for adoption as a baby and they'd never met. So that's how that book started. That was the kind of origin story of that book. And then I realized, well, if I have one story about that, I could have another story from the mother's point of view. And then another story maybe from the son's point of view, the hurler himself. And it just grew from there, really. And before I knew it. I had written about 20 stories and eventually eight of the those ended up in the book. And as you said, it was published two years ago. One highlight for me was uh, the chapter I noticed a character there who's uh, traveling up to the match. We've all been there. We've all gone to Dublin to either Crow Park or to the Aviva Stadium and you're making stop offs. But he's had a he's I think he's had a heavy night the night before. And he's uh... he's 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 in a bad place, really. This is a Clareman. And of course, in, in the fictional uh, Ireland, it's Cork versus Clare's. So I, I have mostly car characters, I suppose, really. It's about 10 to 8, but this is one of the clear people. And he's a former inter-county hurler who couldn't cope with not play, playing anymore. And so he's in a bad way, really. He's taken to gambling and drinking. So it isn't a very good day for him, really. Yeah, even though at the end of that story, we're not exactly sure what happens. But, um, yeah, no doubt. 
that that was one of the tougher ones but uh, they're not they're not all like that for example there's another two stories and because i realized fairly early on in the book as well jordan that i wanted different points of view that you mentioned and i wanted somebody who was a real insider to the game so He's 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 from Mid Cork and he's you know has trained teams and he's you know steeped in the local club and everything. So there's another two chapters in the book about him on his way going to the match and on his way coming coming back down as well. But then I had another character who's from London. She's a young woman who's pregnant and her boyfriend, uh, who doesn't know she's pregnant yet, is a big Cork supporter because I wanted also the point of view of someone who knows nothing about sport and doesn't really, isn't engaged in it, just to kind of get that view as well. Absolutely, it's a fantastic piece. And I believe, Toig, that I guess it came to fruition for uh, for Sunday in September through your place on the uh, Masters in Creative Writing course in UCC. Is that right? That's right, it did. It came directly out of it, Jordan, really. Really, that short story, the very first one, the one called Dukas about the father and son, was something I wrote for one of the modules in the MA. And uh, the reason I did the MA is that I was heading for retirement, as I said, I wanted to write. And in fact, I had started whatever it takes. I had started writing that about five years ago. And I thought, okay, I'll do the MA now and we'll get this, we'll get the book finished. And I'll be working with a lot of other writers and so on. And uh, I'll learn a bit about the craft and the kind of discipline and so on. And um, for some reason, when I started the MA, I just became obsessed with short stories. And I wrote that uh, story, Dukas, and then the, short, the first Sunday in September just came directly out of that. And it was an important course for me. Like, you don't have to do an MA or a writing course to be a writer. I just felt it would be good for me and that it would give me the kind of ability to the opportunity to work with a lot of other writers to kind of treat it seriously to have a lot of deadlines there are a lot of deadlines in the course and you're treated seriously as a writer but you have to you have to be rigorous as well in your application in the MA and that really helped me kind of develop a routine of writing I got up every morning and wrote first thing in the morning and so on so that was a huge boost for me but everyone doesn't have to to do that to, to be a writer by any means but it was just very very helpful for me there's a saying as well that to be a good writer you have to be a good reader and you were a, a librarian i know for many years so you, uh, what are you reading nowadays i'm interested to to hear i'll i tell you now john i have a book here in front of me it's called the writing life by annie dillard and uh, I was reading it, actually, I'll tell you a funny story. I was at a rugby match last uh, Saturday, and, you know, there's no supporters allowed, but the Irish examiner asked me to write about a rugby match. And I was reading about um, this book, which is about, it's about her writing life, and it's about writing, really. And, you know, they often say there's a kind of an old cliche about write about what you know about, but she doesn't really agree with that. She says that you have to write what astonishes you. And sport has always astonished me. And, you know, I'm a little bit astonished by Cork City as well. I really love the city. So I said, look, I'll, that's what I'll give a go to write about that. But I'm reading, uh, I'm reading uh, several books at the moment. I've just finished Catherine Ryan Howard's book. She's a Cork writer and yes. she has a book called The Nothing Man that's set in Cork as well. I've just read John Connolly's um, new crime novel. He's written about 20 of those with his character, Charlie Parker. 
And um, I'm usually reading three or four books at a time. I'm reading another book by a woman called Helen MacDonald called Vesper Flights. She writes about nature and birds especially. And her previous book, Hitches for Hawk, is one of the most moving books I ever read. So um, it's, it's a mixed bag, really, but that's usually the way with me, Jordan. I usually re- have a few books on the go. Uh, excellent stuff yeah i'm looking forward to checking out some of those titles actually and i know i did uh manage to read one that you recommended to me a while back the the prods and necky uh, short story by adrian duncan which appeared in the stinging fly uh, it certainly resonated with me because growing up i, I knew the, the surname prods and necky with the croatian international footballer that was a, a remarkable piece it is really and you know one of the few one of the most amazing things in in ireland where we really love sport we love football we love Gaelic games as well and um, and we love literature we love our writers but they almost there's so little sports fiction in Ireland it's something I never really understood but Adrian really nailed it in that story because uh, the great thing about a short story is that you can get into in a very intense moment and it can be a very short moment in a novel really you have to stretch out time a little bit but uh, you know, football sport, um, and I know you write a bit about football yourself, uh, it's about moments. And you often hear people like Jurgen Klopp talking about this moment or that moment. And that's just one very small moment in a game when he realises that his philosophy of football, the kind of skill and the look, the aesthetic of how people play football, he's he's a... He's an ageing English footballer playing in a kind of middle middle of the road league in North England. And he realises he was wrong. His whole philosophy, all his football life was wrong. And it's a very powerful moment. And uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant short story. And it's a, if you look it up at the moment, this thingy fly have made available a lot of their stuff uh, online for free. So it's well worth, worth looking up for any of your listeners. Certainly is. I think they've made it as a podcast as well, read by Wendy Erskine uh, and Danny Denton as well. That's available on a uh, podcast platform. You mentioned fiction and, and or writing and sport there. Mixing fiction with sport isn't an easy thing to do. It's very much a niche market. I mean, there's yourself, other, other pieces I've read, I mean, would be by the likes of Felix and Dick Francis when they, um, with their racing thrillers. I think Richard Ford is another. Is it a case of like sports writers are very much interested in getting, in getting facts and getting every detail in, whereas in fiction then you're kind of leaving some of it up to the reader? Is it just hard to, to join the two together, do you think? or It, it is really, Jordan. I mean, uh, John McGahan talked about this years ago and he's one of the few Irish short story writers who did incorporate Gaelic football into some of his. He was a sports mad uh, person altogether when he was a teacher uh, on, his, on his teaching breaks. He used to listen to cricket on the radio, imagine. So, uh, but he spoke about the difficulty in... Like, when you're writing a novel or a short story or even a poem, you're you're kind of you're trying to lure in the the reader, and you know it's a false thing, really. I mean, the reader knows that this isn't real. Uh, they know that this is all made up in a writer's head and it's just put down in a book, but they can somehow get past that. They can imagine that they are the characters in the story. If the writing is good enough, um, they can. So they have to to get past that. But then if you're writing about sport, they have to get past the fact that sport is another artificial kind of exercise. It's, you know, these people chasing a ball around the pitch or something like that with all these rules and regulations, etc. And 
it's the double artifice John McGahan talked about. It's very hard to get past that. Now, having said that, funnily enough, in the in countries like America and the UK and so on, they don't seem to have any problem with this. You know, people like Nick Hornby, for example, or Dick Francis that you mentioned. But Nick Hornby has 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 you know a brilliant book about football. But but how he gets around it is that he doesn't. The football doesn't really feature at all. It's about the emotions about. Uh, uh, a young person who has loves Arsenal Football Club, and it's about that relationship, really. And I think a lot of the best sports fiction actually doesn't really feature a whole lot of the actual sport at all, really. It's kind of built around it, built around the emotions um, of, of sport as well, and the intensity of sport, too, I think. you know. But the funny thing is that we have lots of plays in Ireland, lots of theatre, lots of poetry about sport, but we have we still don't have enough fiction, so I really hope that other writers will will take it on. Maybe someone like yourself might take it on, Jordan. And, and yeah, it's something I'm working on. Would you believe at the moment? And I know Danny Denton, who has been a mentor of mine in various writing groups, he did recommend me to check out First Sunday in September. So that's how I first stumbled across that um, book. And as I said, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Do you think 2020, with the lockdown earlier this year, has shown us? how important sport is to our daily lives. I think Jürgen Klopp has touched on it, hasn't he? He has. And, you know, it, it's funny, like, I mean, in, in the middle of April and May, when, you know, we were really battling against the, the virus and, you know, people were dying and, you know, there were terrible kind of scenes of funerals being watched by families on laptops. Then in those moments, you think, like, what's, what's the point of sport? Or, you know, you kind of think, well, sport doesn't really matter. But... Having said that, I was living in East Cork when sport opened up again in June and I saw young people going to the local GA pitch and you kind of the joy in their faces was really impressive. You know, they had the backpack, the hurley sticking out of it and they were all coming together. And one of the great things I think about sport is that it connects people. You know, it really brings people together as players on a team or as supporters at a game, you know, if you're at a game in Turner's Cross or something like that, you really feel you're part of a collective, a community. And that's the sad thing about even though sport is back now, the fans can't go and share that kind of joy and that love of sport and their teams. So I'm looking forward to when that does come back again. That'll be the next step then. And I'm looking forward to that. You strike me as being a very mindful person in that you, you live in the moment and kind of cherish the detail around you. I, I get that sense from reading your work. Like, is that is that accurate, Tyg? You know, is, is mindfulness very much a part of your daily life as well as your writing life? Well, I really try to do it. And one of the things that I think I really enjoy about uh, writing and I, and I, you know, compare uh, writing with, with, with playing sport as to a certain extent as well, because you have to be in the moment. You can only write the sentence that you're writing when you're doing it. You can't really worry about the other sentences you wrote before or the ones that you're going to write the following day. So writing for me is almost like a type of meditation. It's about being in the moment, being in this scene this character, this voice, and really all my writing revolves around, first of all, character and then voice. And when I, f I do find that when I'm writing, I'm probably at my happiest um, and most fulfilled um, because I'm not worried about anything that happened in the past. I'm not worried about anything that could happen in the future. I'm just in the moment. And sport is very like that too, you know, when you're in the middle of a game as a player, like in, in the short story, Prozinecki, for example, 
or even if you're at a game and you're watching and there's something and let's say somebody's gone up the wing, crosses the ball across, like it's just that moment and it takes you out of all your kind of worries, everything that's going on in your life and it, it puts you into that moment and you know, I think we do need that in our life, you know, and I think even even COVID-19 has showed us how much we need, not only our sport, but our music, our theatre, our our literature as well. We, we yeah, we need it. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of artists are suffering it at the moment. They can't play live gigs. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get over this pandemic soon and uh, we can go back to the way it used to be. Yeah, fingers crossed. Very much hoping for that. Uh, talk to me a bit about your, your writing routine, Ty. Is there a certain time of day, certain place you're writing? Yeah, I, I, I write first thing in the morning. I mean, I, I my routine would be I'd get up maybe, what, seven or half seven, something like that, make a cup of tea and go to my desk. And uh, yeah, I, I work at the same desk and I have the same routine at the moment. I'm writing a memoir, a, a book of uh, non-fiction around essays so that that very much it's partly around my own life and it's partly about sports so for example last year in 2019 i might have read i don't know maybe 50 or 60 books about sport and you know listened to you know hundreds of podcasts and looked at various kind of tv shows and so on but so if i'm reading i'm reading but i'll do it at my desk again first thing in the morning or if, if um but if i'm writing it's very much the routine would be, let's say, let's say I was writing a novel, now a scene in a novel, and I take it, I take the kind of fiction writing as scene by scene. If I have a character and a voice, I'll work them into the scene, and I'll put them under some kind of pressure or stress in the scene, and kind of see what happens. But so I would write that, say, in the morning or afternoon and I'd write as long as I could I'd get I'd start to get tired in the afternoon so I'd probably stop at that stage maybe go for a walk or something and start thinking about getting the dinner ready and then I would always almost always if I can leave the scene incompletely when I know what's going to happen next I'd stop so that the next morning when I go back to it I'd do some editing I would kind of revise it, but then I know at least the next scene, I don't have to think about what's going to happen next. So, and that will get me flowing into that as well. That's the theory of it, Jordan. It, it, it often doesn't work like that, but uh, that, that's, that's what I aim for anyway. And it, it seems to work most of the time for me. That's very interesting. And what you're aiming for, I suppose, is that getting into that state of flow, because as you touched on already, it's, it's a beautiful place to be in, isn't it? It is really, it is, you're, you know, you're so deep inside it. And I mean, you're working hard as well because the sentences have to be right, the words have to be right, the voice has to be right. You're, you're, you're solving technical problems all the time. Even in the first draft, you know, Stephen King, who's written a great book about writing, um, calls the first draft the zero draft. And he says that writers write the first draft or the zero draft for themselves. But every other draft of it, then you're writing for the reader. So you're writing for other people. And that, that's a different mindset. You know, jo- Joseph O'Connor, the great Irish novelist, talks about having the reader leaning over his shoulder, looking at him when he's writing. And, you know, we, we writers have to always be thinking about the reader when, when we are writing as well. Because it, that's, that's the purpose we do it. We don't do it's not a hobby. It's for other people to read it and to get something out of it. That's, that's the whole point. 
Do you get the sense that there's a particularly strong writing scene in Cork with the last kind of five years or so? Maybe it's always been the case now, but I just think, or maybe it's just an Irish thing, but I just think over the last kind of five years, fiction writing in Cork seems to be kind of a scene that's booming. It is. It's fantastic, really. You know, we have so many great writers. Uh, you know, we have fiction at the Ferry. I know you've attended a few, some of those yourselves. We have, you know, people like Daniel McLaughlin bringing out a book next year. You mentioned Catherine Kerwin's book last year. Catherine Ryan Howard has a book this year. Louise O'Neill uh, has a book just set in West Cork, uh, just out as well. It's called After the Silence. Um, yeah, it. it I think it is very vibrant and I think it does a great scene, you know, and people like Ema Ryan, Danny Denton, um, Kevin Doyle, there's so many writers out there now. Um, and it's, it's an exciting time too. I'm delighted to be part of it. And, you know, there's a great sense of community among the writers in Cork too, I have to say. And that's one of the things I miss most, uh, you know, from the pandemic that we can't meet up in the Friary Bar or at other events in Waterstones or the City Library or UCC or at various festivals, you know, so I, I do miss that. But we're very lucky that we have a great a great scene in, in fiction and, and poetry and in other forms of writing in Cork at the moment. So it, it is it is really great because you know, when when another writer does well and the book comes out, like we can all bask in that and we know what kind of an achievement it is. So it, it gives everybody lift. I think everybody rises on a, on a rising tide. You touched on the other projects you're working on at the moment as well, but I, I do believe that uh, Tim Collins is going to make a return over the coming years. Is there? There's a series, crime novel series in motion, Tig, is there? There is, Jordan. That's the plan anyway at the moment. Um, I'm at the very early stages of the sequel to uh, whatever it takes. I mean, anybody who reads the book will see there are a few few kind of loose ends at the end of it that will have to be tied up, and he'll have to he'll have to go back into um, into battle against a few different characters. But I'm also thinking of a prequel because, as part of the book as well, it refers to a, a case before. Whatever it takes was mostly set in 2016, um, but there was another case before that of a serial killer which affected Collins very badly. So I, I'm going to try and work on those two books over the winter and the spring at the same time. Then the second one, the first one will be the sequel, as I say, the second one will be a prequel and that will go back a bit to his younger days as well when he was a hurler and when he was a young guard and came under the mentorship of another guard, a man called Quirk. So that's the plan at the moment anyway. So hopefully I'll be busy all through the winter and the spring. Yes, well, that's very exciting and looking forward to reading more uh, about that. I guess your own hurling days would have influenced some of your writing as well. Tiger, I know you, you played for Cork at county level. You won a, an All-Ireland title as a minor and you would have played hurling in college as well. When... I suppose, and why did the did the hurling career come to a conclusion, Tyg? Was it a case of like life getting in the way? Did you fall out of love with it, or no? I I did wouldn't say I ever fell out of love with hurling, and I played football too. I played for Mallow United for years, and in a way, uh, football, soccer, as some people call it, it, was my first love. To be honest, as a child, you know, I when I was seven, I saw George Best uh, on television playing for Manchester United, and that was it, really, like. 
some kind of a switch was flicked inside me at that moment. And, and, and you as a sports person had the same um, switch flicked inside you when something happened to you as a child. So that really did start the, the kind of ball rolling for me with sport. And I felt very comfortable playing sport. I, you know, I was a fairly anxious child, but I was very comfortable always playing sport. I wanted to be part of the community of sport. And luckily, there's a very good GAA club in Mallow. And I joined that and I started playing hurling. And then uh, uh, I went to secondary school to St. Coleman's College from Moy, which is a very strong hurling club. And I come under the kind of influence of some coaches there. And, and that really took on my hurling to a new level. But um, yeah, so I played, I played football for Mallow until I was about 25 or 26. Um, my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, she moved to Limerick and was working there. So I wanted to spend the weekends with her. So I had to decide between football and her. So I, I, I chose her. But I kept on playing hurling until I was about 30. I played, you know, for my home club until I was into my early 30s. And yeah, I loved it. Um, a lot of happy memories of that. I made a lot of great friends. And I think it also, you know, helped me appreciate, especially those two games, but all games, really. I'd watch kind of any any sport, really, that I, that I can watch. And, and because I wrote the first Sunday in September, and that really was written around 2016, 2017, uh, 2018. Um, I realized, actually, it was at a... I went to a festival in Paris, a literary festival, and my uh, one of my favourite writers is a woman called Elizabeth Strout. And Sinead Gleeson was interviewing her, and she asked her a question. She said, do you think you're going to write a memoir about your mother? Because if you read the books of Elizabeth Strout, there's always a very difficult mother-daughter relationship. So, But Elizabeth Strout said, no, she said, I'll never write a memoir. Uh, she said, I hide behind my characters in my fiction and I'm going to continue hiding behind them. I can't come out from behind them. And the moment she said that, I had a kind of flashbulb moment. I realized that in the first Sunday in September, I was hiding behind the characters in the book. And unlike her, and I was writing about my philosophy of sport, what I think about sport does to us within those 18 characters that we spoke about. And I realized that... No, I actually was going to come out from behind the characters. And at that moment, I decided to write this memoir, this book of essays about sport, which is what I'm doing now. I'm interrogating why I was interested in sport, what kind of sport does to us, why it means so much to us. I mean, why Liverpool, winning, a city in the north of England, why that club winning a, a, a Premier League meant so much to so many Irish people, or so many people around the world. And um, the kind of emotional lift that it gave to those people. So that's what that book is about. So fingers crossed, I'll be, I'll be, I'll have that ready before Christmas, and I'll be sending it out, and hopefully it'll be published next year. Excellent stuff indeed. And you mentioned there you're a Man United fan. After, uh, like myself as well, I'm a Manchester United fan. But after a after a golden era, I suppose under Ferguson, it's been. Um, well, I was going to say it's been a lean few years, but like compared to other clubs like Manchester United, they've still been winning FA Cups and Europa Leagues. Like some clubs would kill for that. How do you see the years ahead for Manchester United under Solskjaer, Tig? Ah, oh, I I would always be positive about these things, Jordan. You know, I mean, I remember I'm old enough to remember the kind of bad days 
before Fergie, you know, I was in secondary school. I remember the day United got relegated, uh, you know, all those kind of memories. And it was Dennis Law actually scored the goal that, <laughs> that relegated us. So these things come in cycles, really. You know, Liverpool are going well at the moment. But things can change very quickly, too. If you, like, who would have thought a few years ago that Leicester City were going to win the Premier League? It came from nowhere, really. With, you know, and it wasn't a big oligarch went in. And, you know, bought all these top players from Barcelona and so on. They, they came from nowhere. So that's one of the m- most amazing things about sport is we don't know what's, hap- what's going to happen. We don't know how things are going to turn. You know, you could say that somebody like Virgil, well, obviously uh, Jurgen Klopp, but someone like Van Dijk made a huge kind of change to, to Liverpool and everything kind of fitted together. So who knows, you know, uh, a new United player could come in and do the same. And that's the great thing really is that we live in hope. And even the clubs, you know, that don't have the kind of money or, or the local clubs really who are playing junior football or hurling or, or gilly football, we live in hope. And every time we go out to, to, to watch a match or to play a game, we don't know what's happened. And that's the real most exciting thing about sport, really. You know, we, we, we have to watch this unfold in, in front of our eyes in the moment. And that's, that's really cool. Indeed. And we could say the same with the Republic of Ireland team as well. It hasn't been a great start under Stephen Kenny, but you can see what he's trying to do. And it could be the dawning of a new exciting era for Irish soccer. Uh, I would love it. I would love it for all the football people in Ireland, especially Jordan, you know, and, you know, a lot of my friends in Mali United now, like, I mean, uh, you know, we mostly played junior, we played a bit of senior as well, but uh, it, it, it's been a tough few years, really, with all the kind of shenanigans at the FEI and everything, and with the different managers coming and going. It would be lovely to have a period of continuity, but the other reality is that these things take time too. And even Fergie, you know, and even people like Matt Busby, Jurgen Klopp to a certain extent, you know, it, it doesn't... It doesn't happen. We want. We live in a kind of an age of immediacy with social media, and we want this now. And okay, he's lost a couple of games, but you know, things will settle down, and we have to give him a give him a couple of years at least, and you know, let the players develop, and we'll know then where we stand. But I think the main thing is to keep supporting the game and supporting our national team and and our other teams, and uh, you know, not be knocking all the time or looking for negativity. Absolutely. Uh, Ty, for those interested in, in, I suppose, the sports writing, uh, you do keep a website, a blog, where you post all your articles. They can go there to uh, to read more of your work. Yeah, tycoakley.com. Yeah, I do. And uh, I started writing the blog, really, just as a way of practicing the kind of writing, uh, practicing the kind of short form. You know, I was interested in writing kind of more thoughtful pieces about sport, especially, and about nature and other things that I'm interested in you know, which wouldn't be really suitable for, for, for publication elsewhere. So uh, I, keep, I keep doing that every so often as a break, like from my essays or my novels, I write a short piece. I mean, some of them are published in the examiner in various places, but a lot of them aren't. And they're just kind of thoughts, really. But I think the main thing for any writer who's interested in writing is to keep writing. That's really whatever it is, if it's poetry, if it's theatre, if it's screenplays, to sit down, it's like playing a sport. You have to train, if not every day, every, every second day. And you have to keep exercising the muscles. And writing is like a muscle. It's like a 
running or swimming or anything else. And um, I find I'm at my happiest when I'm writing as well. So yeah, every day, God willing, you know, if I'm if I'm healthy and everything, I'll I'll, I'll keep at it. Yeah. That sounds great. And I suppose persistence, perseverance are really important with it, aren't they? Oh, huge altogether because, you know, very often the material I would send out to an agent or a publisher is rejected. Every writer knows those kind of feelings. Everybody who writes music knows that, you know, they might write a song and pitch it to someone and they won't like it. And even if you think of the great players, like, you know, people like Roy Keane, they had to overcome serious obstacles and injuries and dips in form and so on. And it's it's almost always, it's it's no coincidence that the best players are the ones who work the hardest and the ones who bounce back the quickest because, you know, you're going to get knocks in sport and you're going to get them in writing. And some days I would spend four or five, maybe six hours writing in the day and at the end of it I would look at it and say, God, that's rubbish, you know. But the main thing is to get up the following morning and do it all over again. Is, is that what motivates you, would you say, Toy? That was my next question. Like, What makes you tick? Is it, you know, writing every day, getting into that state of flow and hoping you're better than the day before? Or? Yeah, it is. It, it is really. Um, and you have to kind of forgive yourself those lapses as well. Some, not everything works, even... People like Paul McCartney or whoever, you know, have written songs maybe that aren't as good as other songs. Um, but the main thing is to keep going because if you don't, then, and I would often say to writing friends and they'd say, God, I'd love to have a novel published or something. And I'd say, well, did you finish a novel? You know, starting writing is really important and keeping at it, but you have to finish what you start as well. That's really important because I spoke earlier about the the first draft or the zero draft as Stephen King called it. And if you don't have a first draft, you can't fix it. If you don't have a piece of writing, let's say it's a short story of three or 4,000 words. If you don't have a first draft of three or 4,000 words, you can't fix what's wrong with it. You can't improve it. You can't work on it. You can't polish it. You can't change the ending. You can't change the start. You can't do anything with it. So the first thing is to get black down and white as Sean O'Fuelan used to say, and uh, then you can work on it because the first draft might take a year, but the second, third, tenth, twentieth draft could take another two or three years in a novel. Uh, it, that's really where the hard kind of heavy lifting is done, really, and when it, when it gets ready for for publication. But without the first draft, you can't do the fifteenth or the twentieth draft. So that that really is the important thing is to to stick with it. Very interesting. Uh, we're almost coming to the end of our discussion, Tyg, and I guess a couple of other questions I usually ask guests. Uh, we've touched on one already with the, the books you're reading, but are there other books, albums, records that you've been enjoying, I suppose, particularly in recent months with the lockdown that, you, that you'd recommend? Yeah, well, it's funny. I take an awful lot of, I mean, I listen to a lot of new music. When I'm writing, I actually listen to music, but it's very much, uh, well, it's very much, um, music without lyrics it's very much i'd listen to things like jazz various kind of jazz musicians that i like kind of slow music people like ian rector epic 45 those kind of people but then i noticed in the lockdown you know when things weren't really good in april and may i went back to a lot of the music of my childhood people like Joni mitchell jackson brown uh, bob dylan neil young um all these kind of there was a certain nostalgia there, I think, but there was also 
a certain comfort in that. It's like, you know, if you're a child and your favorite food is fish fingers or whatever, uh, like, you know, when you eat that as an adult, it brings back that kind of comfort of, of, of being a child again. And I did listen to a lot of music in the evenings, um, especially during the lockdown. Not so much, no, I must, must admit. Um, but, I do. I listen to a lot of music. I haven't been watching much film or Netflix or anything like that. I have to say lately, I've been mostly reading. I've been reading books of essays as well because I'm working on essays. And uh, an essayist I really admire is, I mentioned one, Helen MacDonald, but Olivia Lang. Uh, she, had, she had a book published recently called Strange Weather. And it's actually about how we cope in a crisis uh, and how art actually helps us to cope in a, in a crisis. Now, the crisis she was talking about was the crisis to do with Donald Trump and immigration. And, you know, she was going back to artists who performed their art and who painted and made uh, music and so on during the AIDS crisis and other kind of crises like this. Um, but it was it was a very powerful book. But I think you mentioned earlier the importance of reading I think read what you like and read what you'd like to write yourself. And, you know, when I read somebody like Olivia Lang, I think, oh, my God, I wish I'd written that. But it doesn't matter what it is, if it's YA books, if it's fiction, if it's fantasy, thriller, horror, crime, high literature, it doesn't matter as long as you enjoy it. And as long as you pick up from these great writers and these great musicians as you go along. Tyke, finally, given the title of the podcast, Lee Side Lives, what is it you love most about Lee Side, would you say? It's very hard to describe it, Jordan. I just love the kind of sense of place. And I think, you know, I grew up in Mallow, but I moved to Cork when I was about 18. And I've always felt at home in Cork. I like, I love the size of the city. It's a manageable size. It's not a huge, vast city like New York City or London or um, LA or anything like that. Or Dublin even is very big. I love the rivers and I said a lot of the, I put, I put Collins, as you know, in the book Living by the River. I really love the two channels of the river, the North Channel and the South Channel. And this time of the year now, we're heading towards autumn and the leaves will be coming down. And it's been a tough, it's been a tough year really for everybody. But Cork does know her like it and I mean I'm biased and you're biased but that's the way we feel about it and I love the voice of Cork I love the way we express ourselves I try to put that as much as I can into, into both my books the way we speak the kind of musicality of the way we speak and the language and I often think that that little kind of inflection the going up and down of the way we speak is a reflection of the topography of the city of the hills and the valleys and the river and uh, um, yeah, I, I love Cork, I have to say. I don't mind admitting that at all. I, I'm not ashamed of that. And on that note, we'll conclude, Ty. Listen, thanks a million for your time. Continued success with your writing. Best of luck with the, with the second book, whatever it takes. I hope it continues to uh, gather momentum uh, in Cork and further afield. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks very much for having me on. I really enjoyed that. That was Cork author and sports writer Tyke Coakley. Here is an excerpt from his brand new novel, Whatever It Takes. Prologue, 17th of October, 2015. Collins walked across the bridge and saw them gathered on the distant quayside. He turned right off the road and passed the barrel-vaulted warehouses. The rigging on nearby yachts slapped against their masts, a sharp metallic sound. Jim Dillon, the head of the Garda water unit, broke from the group and approached him. 
a phone to his ear. Detective, Dylan said. He held his hand over the phone. I've called the hearse. It's on its way. Collins nodded and kept walking. The wind picked up as he neared the cluster of men by the water's edge. It whipped at his ears and flapped his coat and pants. A bitter easterly gathering chill and spite as it made its way up the river. Two wetsuited divers squatted on the quayside, gathering their gear. Two more stood over the closed body bag on the ground. Looks like that's suicide all right, Collins, one of them said. Liam Mullins, a former international swimmer. He appeared as fit and healthy as ever, although he was in his early 40s, the same age as Collins. Amazing how many of them we find around here. Collins licked his lips. He glanced up at the sign above their heads. Port of Cork. He lowered his right knee to the ground beside the body bag. A familiar genuflection.